Hello, welcome back to Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson. This is a new series, Missed You Like Crazy, great to be back. And uh, we're kicking off with tattoos, the art of painting on the skin. Fashionable now, isn't it? But it wasn't always so. In fact, my mum was very sniffy about people who had tattoos, even her dad, who was a sailor and had got one. But I'm fascinated by the fact that tattoos are like a little piece of art that you just wear with you all your life, sometimes in very private places. So where do they all come from? The idea of them? What's the history behind them? Where can we find the oldest tattoo? And when did tattoos stop being taboo? I'm discussing all this and much more with my two very special guests, the tattoo and tattooed historian Matt Lodder and the indelibly inked and superbly talented tattoo artist and presenter Grace Neutral. So the oldest tattoos that we have actually in skin are on a European guy, an early Bronze Age, Copper Age guy called Otzi. Oh, this is the Frozen Man. Yeah, yeah, literally the Frozen Man. He was murdered. Uh, He had a kind of arrow head in his back. But he had these really interesting tattoo marks all over his body. He has about 60-odd tally marks, crosses and dots and dashes. Actually tattooed, technically tattooed, probably in the same way that Grace is tattooing now. Is that because you're a really primitive tattooist? <laughs> yeah, essentially, because I don't use the machines or anything like that. I literally just use a needle that's tied to a tiny little stick and I just poke the ink into the skin. Anyway, before we get to that, here's Melissa, my producer, here for a chat. Hello again. Tony, we're back. It's so yeah. fun. Yeah. <laughs> I love this. I've missed you. Missed you too. Thank you. But I didn't hear about Holly Berry and I'm so sorry. Yes, my wonderful, beloved dog died over the summer. And I'm still in mourning, but maybe that's a subject for another podcast at some time. The yes. way we mourn our animals now, we just get smacked in the face by it, don't we? Anyway, that's not for today. I just wanted to say big love to you because you. we talked about her on the podcast, we didn't did. we, when we did dogs. Yeah. So... Today we're talking about tattoos. Tony, why did you want to do tattoos? I got that message, I want tattoos, and I thought, okay, is there a history? But there is, there's an amazing history, isn't there? Yes, it happened because I'm writing a novel about the medieval period, and I identified somebody by their tattoo and someone I know and respect infinitely had a look at that bit of the book and they said I'm sorry this is wrong tattoos didn't really start until the 18th century when Captain Cook went over to Polynesia and I remember thinking well then that can't really have been when they started if the Polynesians were already tattooed but anyway I didn't think it was appropriate for there to be someone in the middle ages who was tattooed I then found that In the Bronze Age, people were being tattooed, and not just kind of wiggly little snaky-like things, but very elaborate tattoos too. Once I knew that, well, you know what I'm like, someone so passionate about archaeology and about history, then there must be echoes from the Bronze Age right through to today, a real good podcast that we can start the series off with. Brilliant, which we are doing. Before we get there, though, Tony, Mm. have you got any tattoos? I don't discuss that. <laughs> no, I haven't. Go tell uh, us. I've, I, I've thought about it a lot. Both I and my wife have at times thought about it. But in a way, thinking about it for a long time is enough. We've imagined them on us and then we go off and get involved in something else. So no, neither of us have. So what would it be if you were going to have one? 
I think if I did, it would. I would want something very, very elaborate, but very, very small, like the Last Supper, but about three inches long. Yeah, in, in a very private place. Oh, for God's sake! <laughs> Eight inches long. <laughs> <laughs> right, Tony. Well, I think we should get on to tattoos, don't you? Tattoos, 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 tattoos. We're t- talking about tattoos today, and I have with me Matt Lodder, who is a tattoo historian, yeah. and Grace Neutral, who's a journalist and a tattoo artist. First question, pretty obvious one. Why do you love tattoos so much? Would you like to go first? I think you should go first, Grace. <laughs> okay, um, for me, well, the I think the love for or the curiosity for tattoos and kind of like the way people change their bodies started when I was a kid because my mum, she had lots of different books in her art room with all these different pictures of tribes and different cultures around the world and how they like adorn their bodies with scarification and tattoos. That's my earliest memory of thinking like, wow, this is really cool. And then just taking over in school, you know, with like seeing magazines and on the telly and things like that, seeing people in real life and also being into the kind of alternative music that I was into. Yeah. Tattoos kind of overlap that culture as well. So it was just like something that I kind of got this lust for almost at a very young age. And You say just, young age. How old were you when you got your first tattoo? I was actually 15 when I got my first oh. tattoo. So was my yeah. daughter. Scandalous. <laughs> and how did you feel about your daughter getting tattooed at 15? Uh... Slightly ambivalent. I tell you why, because I didn't think it was a very good tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you go through that as a parent, you go through all that emotional thing of, oh my God, I want to be liberal, but I also don't want her to have something <laughs> that's going to scar her for life. And then at the end of the day, you think, is it that good, really? Right. And I think that probably that's why I haven't got tattoos. Can't make your yeah, mind it, up. It probably wasn't. Well, that I good can make you... my mind up, but the t- I'm ultimately, I'm at the, in the hands of the tattooist. Aren't yeah, I? Well, definitely. Yeah, it probably wasn't that good if she got tattooed at 15. I mean, the, the crossover between people that do good tattoos and people that tattoo 15 year olds is is, is slim oh, <laughs> very, yeah, that, point, that's yeah. a very good point Matt yeah. very very how true how old were you then Matt, when I you actually I also got into tattooing really really young um, but I was so obsessed that I knew I didn't want a bad one because I saw too many people who I was at school with get them done underage who would sneakily tell like lie to their parents and say that they were temporary and that they would disappear after a few months which is basically impossible um, so I didn't get tattooed until I was 21 because I was just buying books and magazines and consuming everything I could about tattoo culture from when I was about 12 years old. And, you know, I'd been fascinated by it even uh, earlier than that. And so, yeah, I, I sort of avoided getting a bad one, you know. Yeah. You're so smart. I, yeah. I did the exact opposite of that. I just covered myself in really bad tattoos. <laughs> I mean, I got a lot of mediocre ones and I'm sort of I'm I'm sort of running out of space and wish I had some more real estate left, but um yeah, I was very lucky that I didn't you know go to the the guy at the end of the road. And and you're a historian as well. I mean, you yeah. d- you don't just 
cover tattoos, do you? No, well, tattooing is the, is the reason I became a historian. When I was sort of going to university, my dad said, no one will pay you to read books for a living, go and get a real job, yeah. right? And it turns out people will pay you to read books for a living. Um, sometimes even write them. And I found my way to, to being an art historian, doing a PhD in art history, because I, I wanted to make sense of tattooing. And when I went to libraries and academic journals, what I was reading about tattooing and what I'd seen in my kind of early encounters with the tattoo industry didn't really make sense with what I was reading in these published books. And what, what do you mean by that? I'd read, for example, that you know, tattooing used to be just for sailors, right, or criminals. And my great-grandma had a tattoo. Um, and she was neither a sailor nor a criminal. She was tattooed uh, in around about the turn of the 20th century. Her brother came home one day with a, with a tattoo machine that he'd acquired from somewhere or other and said, can I tattoo you? And uh, she said, will it come off? And he said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what a terrible thing yeah. to do. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so she had her initials tattooed on her wrist, yeah. uh, E.D., Ethelwyn Derby. And, you know, that, that kind of part of the story of the history of tattooing, the more vernacular, the more everyday, was sort of invisible. I mean, I, I've since found out that, tattoo machine that my great uncle had may have been bought from a toy shop because oh, what? Really? <laughs> for, for a while uh, in Gamage's department store in Holborn around the corner from where we are now yeah. you could buy tattoo machines over the counter initially as electrical novelties alongside little light up boutonnieres and things and they were in the Christmas catalogue for a while and then later on as professional equipment but tattoo, machine, tattoo machines were quite easily available in, in you know on the British high street for at least a few years you mentioned the stigma that yeah which is it's ironic isn't it because originally i understand that tattoos were actually called stigmas but it wasn't just sailors and soldiers if women were tattooed they were thought of as sex workers weren't yeah. they? you literally are both like so my dad my both my parents weren't that thrilled about me getting tattooed so young but my dad had a really hard time with it because my dad was in the navy he was a captain in the navy and that's exactly what he associated tattoos with prostitutes and sailors that's mm. what he said to me so it was a lot for him to kind of get his head round the idea of me being so heavily tattooed let alone wanting to be a tattoo artist but yeah there's always been this kind of like old school stigma with tattooing which I think has been carried up until probably quite recently Before we started Matt you were saying that it actually messed up Egyptian history this <laughs> yeah, kind of stigma. Yeah yeah yeah. Explain what happened Yeah so there's lots of mummies uh, from pre-dynastic and through dynastic Egypt which have been discovered with tattooing and actually more are being discovered all the time but many of the ones that were, that were discovered in the first part of the 20th century that had tattoo marks on them were women and so Egyptologists were saying well who has tattoos what kind of woman has a tattoo sex worker so therefore these tattooed women that we're finding from from dynastic egypt must be sex working women and therefore they're concubines for the dead or they were kind of um, part of the uh, imperial retinue of the pharaoh or to accompany him comfortably into the afterlife and that of course <laughs> there was no actual and it's you know evidence of that at all um, just a western opinion sprinkled on there. yeah it was, it was a western opinion and a kind of you know early 20th century european opinion of what kind of women have tattoos and that actually messed up the account of the role of women in the Egyptian courts <laughs> for yeah. about half a century. But those Egyptian tattoos aren't the oldest that have been found, are they? No. So the oldest tattoos that we have 
actually in skin are on a European guy, a early Bronze Age, Copper Age guy called Otzi. Oh, was... this is the Frozen Man. Yeah, yeah, literally the Frozen Man. Um, he was discovered in the 90s, but he uh, dates to about 5,000 years ago, 3,500 years BCE. And we don't know much about him or his culture. Actually, we know a lot about him as an individual, uh, but we don't know anything about his culture, really. He's the only person from his culture we found. He was murdered. Uh, he had a kind of arrow head in his back. But he had these really interesting tattoo marks all over his body. He has about 60-odd tally marks, crosses and dots and dashes. Actually, tattooed, technically tattooed, probably in the same way that Grace is tattooing now. So five and a half thousand years, the technology for tattooing hasn't changed very much. Is that because you're a really primitive tattooist? <laughs> yeah, essentially, yeah, I, I am because I don't use the machines or anything like that. I literally just use a needle that's tied to a, a tiny little stick just to give me a bit of grip and I just poke the, the ink into the skin. There are different kind of variations of techniques and tools that are used but if you go into a lot of like indigenous tattooing and tattooing from different cultures you'll find it all started with kind of like the hand poke method hand poke yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. hand poke hand tapping there's lots of different words for it and you do this why I started tattooing, well, no, I started working in a tattoo shop when I was 18 as a body piercer. This, like, tiny little, like, naive 18-year-old who just had these, like, big dreams to just fulfill certain body modifications and tattoos for myself, but also, like, learn different crafts within it. And I started off with body piercing, and I wanted to be a tattoo artist because I've always been very creative, I've always drawn, I've always liked to just be making things, drawing things, and to be able to translate that into tattooing was very exciting prospect for me but it was also a time of tattooing hadn't taken off like it has today it was still kind of living by the old school realms of tattooing um, or western tattooing you know with the kind of like old school male dominated a lot of biker influence and things like that so for me to want to become a tattoo artist I wasn't taken very seriously because one I was a woman and two I was a body piercer so the answer I would get when I kind of expressed I wanted to learn was no like don't be (laughs) stupid get back in your place kind of thing so I didn't have anyone to teach me about machines and how they work so I knew about hygiene I knew about cross-contamination and everything through that through body piercing so I just thought I'm gonna do this on my own I'm gonna go and get tattooed by a few people who do hand pokes see if I can get some tips and tricks and learn some things and just take it from there and that's what I did and little did I know really that it was full circle because of all the inspiration I'd got from my mum and tribal culture as a kid for it to kind of come around full circle that this had probably inspired me and been deep rooted in me from before I had even known. I've read, I, th- I think it might be Tacitus, but it was one of, it's one of the ancient yeah. historians, that the Thracian women, yes. so that's before Jesus anyway, yes, isn't basically. it? They got themselves tattooed as a kind of assertion, if you like, of, the, of, of their rights of as women, after having been conquered, after having been treated badly by their husbands and whatever. Those stories are interesting to piece together because they sort of come through the stories of Herodotus and um, Pliny and various other Greek historians. So you sort of have the you know victor's take on those a little bit. They're interesting because the, the Greeks didn't have a mainstream tattoo culture, right? But they did tattoo slaves and they saw a lot of tattooing on their borderlands, including amongst the Thracians. And so there was a sense that tattooing was this kind of primitive, barbarous kind of atavistic practice but interestingly they thought the Thracian 
female tattooing was very beautiful. If you, there's lots of um, depictions of tattooed facial women on amphora and pots, for example, and there's this really interesting continuity between their clothing, the way their their dresses and things are depicted, and the tattoo designs they have on them. And some of the ancient Greek sources kind of suggest that it began as a kind of stigmatizing thing done actually maybe on even Thracian captives in Greece um, that then was kind of appropriated. I don't know, know to what degree the archaeological evidence backs that up, but certainly the Greek were kind of interestingly ambivalent about and this is actually again a story that kind of persists all through history into the to the present day to present day and sort of goes back a bit to this sex worker stuff we were just talking about that tattooed women in particular get to be dangerous and strange and primitive you know in inverted, in inverted commas but also be kind of alluring and, and sexy and it's it's this interesting you know particular dichotomy that tattooed women have had to face but there is something qu- quite exciting about that ambivalence isn't it that, that i'm sure you don't mind that it's a bit edgy that if you show your arm when you're buying a drink or whatever suddenly your tattoos will be revealed and people will enjoy the drama of it so people say this to me a lot and i'm sure you get this yeah. as well because you're very heavily tattooed oh do you do it to shock people and i don't think that that's necessarily something i've done it for but you're right there are levels because sometimes it's really kind of empowering to walk into a space and people clock that you might be tattooed yeah. and then suddenly i don't know some people kind of like revere you and look at you like wow look at this person and what they've done to their bodies other times people might you know take a step back and be like whoa and sometimes I don't mind that because I you know (laughs) the space is nice sometimes there's an amazing woman um, called Amy Crocker who was a kind of socialite in late 19th century New York she was the daughter of a judge one of the richest women in America at the time her her autobiography by the way is called And I Do It Again which is the greatest title of an autobiography I've ever heard But she basically, because she had so much money and could do whatever she wanted, she got really heavily tattooed and, vis- and and showed them off. So a lot of women were tattooed in the 19th century because, like today, particularly good tattooing was expensive. But most of the time it would be hidden <coughs> under clothing. Amy Crocker basically didn't care, was really happy to show off her tattoos. She'd been to Japan with her first husband, maybe got tattooed there, certainly seen it. When she came back to New York... She, while she was still married to her first husband, she called the most famous Japanese tattoo artist in the world, who happened to be sort of working briefly in New York, to her home. And she had tattooed on her, her initial and her boyfriend's initial. And her boyfriend was this English actor who was poor. So there's always layers. She was still married. She was rich and she was marrying this actor guy. And she had his initials tattooed on her arm. And then had a whole sleeve done of like beetles and demons' heads and stuff. And because she could get away with it. And that kind of, and she became known as the Queen of Bohemia. And this kind of shockingness was part of her, you know, part of her kind of social positioning. Lord Lonsdale as well, around the same time, a bit later on, he used to come to clubs in London and he was heavily tattooed, not normally visible. Most English gentlemen weren't rolling their sleeves up, but he'd roll his sleeve up at dinner to reveal his Japanese tattoos. And again, playing with that kind of shock and awe and surprise about what's going on underneath clothing. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Hi, this is Tony Robinson bringing you my cunning cast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating or a review. And do take a look at our back catalogue. There's a growing selection of shows there to keep you company. Everything from Stonehenge to why highs were invented, why do our dogs love us so much, and the legend that is Miriam Margulies. I'm sure you're going to find something you like, so why not take a lucky dip? Go on, it won't hurt you. Quite a few members of the royal family yeah. in the 19th and through into the 20th century yeah. got tattooed. How yeah. did that come about? Every royal visitor to Japan from 1869, uh, which was the Alfred Duke of Edinburgh, right the way through to Edward VIII. And Edward VIII actually wrote um, in the 1920s back to his mother, I think, and said, I'm not going to get tattooed. It's a bit, it's too, it's illegal now. It had been illegal the whole time that everyone else had done it, actually. But he sort of was the first. Interestingly, he wouldn't, he wouldn't think he'd care. Just but, sorry, in parenthesis, what was illegal? Ta- so, getting tat- so getting tattooed and, well, actually, let's, let's say more specifically, being a tattoo artist in Japan was illegal from, a, from the 1860s. The Americans showed up in 1853 and said, if you don't trade with us, we're going to invade you. And the Japanese thought, well, we better, we better show the Europeans that we're as European as they are. Otherwise, we're going to get colonised. One of the things they did was actually adopt European racism and racial hierarchies and pointed to their indigenous cultures, particularly the Ainu up in the north of Japan, who have very heavy kind of Pacific style tattooing, including on the face, and said, yeah, these are like the primitive people that you've been conquering. We're just like you. We're conquering them as well. So tattooing was a way of separating kind of mainstream Japanese culture from the indigenous cultures to make themselves appear more European. But also, when the Europeans showed up, there was this fairly recent not not quite a hundred years old tradition of what we now think of as japanese tattooing very big grand decorative stuff based on woodblock designs and again the japanese thought this makes them look not very european but of course all the europeans they were like this is what this is cool we want this (laughs) stuff and so actually very quickly all of like loads of japanese silverware and cloisonne and print and stuff just left the country so if you went as a a tourist to japan the most authentic japanese art that you could get was tattooing and tattooists were banned from tattooing japanese people but there was this loophole they could get away with tattooing europeans they advertised to european clients and those european clients included for example george v and his brother albert victor and many members of the house of lords george v of course got a dragon obviously and albert victor had some storks on his arm but on on the way home, they stopped off at Jerusalem and their father, Edward VII, had been there 20 years earlier in 1861 and gotten a pilgrimage tattoo. And they actually write in, uh, George writes in his surviving letters that, you know, he got tattooed by the same man as Papa. Um, no one knew about, actually, Edward VII's tattoo until the 1880s, but he was, um, he'd been tattooed by t- for 20 years by that point. Well, carrying on a tradition that goes back into the 1500s. Harry must have one somewhere. Well, people ask me that and I suspect he probably does. I haven't heard uh, this. You, you know, haven't heard that he hasn't. I haven't heard that he hasn't. Which- Proves sure. that well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but it's so. I mean, t- tattooing around this time in the nineteenth century, particularly in Europe, it became. It, it was already starting to be linked in European thought with criminals and you know, in degenerates, but also with degenerate aristocrats. Yeah, because when you <laughs> when you said Owen oh, members of the House of Lords, yeah. it sounded like the way we refer to the gentry oh, in sorry. the closet in, yeah, yeah. in the nineteenth and twentieth century. Is there much of an overlap between tattooing and and the gay scene? You and must have a lot of gay clients. 
Yeah, so my studio is predominantly queer as far as people who work there. And our client base is predominantly queer as well, yeah. I would say, yeah. From working in such a male, like I said before, from working in such a male-dominated, in many male-dominated shops over the years, that's all I'd really known. And I wanted to create a space for women and queer people and anyone marginalised in the industry, basically, which is basically anyone who isn't a white man <laughs> so it's just like a safe space for them as artists to come and work but also people who aren't down for going into studios and getting that icy cold yeah. reception which a lot of people were used to you know back in the day and it still exists now in some places but I think it's it's less but back in the day you would expect to walk into a tattoo shop and feel the kind of like people looking down on you like you weren't worthy to be there like you almost had to prove yourself to even want to be tattooed yeah. there you know so many experiences I've had and so many experiences I've spoken to other people about where they've had had experiences just feeling uncomfortable and they're not in a safe space and that was for me the reason that I wanted to create my own studio and it just naturally happened that way you know the history of western tattooing is is actually much gayer than people realize hell yeah. so <laughs> hell yeah um of course it's a very homosocial act you know lots of men touching each other with no clothes on not very many clothes on one of the most influential tattooers of the post-war period in America was a literature professor at DePaul University in the term time and a tattooer in the summer and he became a tattooer because as he got older his name was Phil Sparrow with the name he tattooed under as he got older he could no longer pick up the hot sailor boys that he fancied in bars because he was getting older so he's like how can I meet hot sailor boys I'll become a tattoo artist Perfect. and he because he was an academic and, a, and a, a scholar he was a correspondent of Gertrude Stein's in Paris and all kinds of things he ended up introducing a lot of younger tattoo artists to things like Japanese tattooing and tattoo history because he had this kind of academic take on the matter. In London there was a, a gay tattooer called Mr Sebastian who worked on Mount Pleasant and he was basically sort of the tattooer to the gay scene and all the rest of the tattooers if anyone came in wanting something literally under below the belt <laughs> below the belt and above the knee they'd send them to him but it turned out and it's turning out increasingly as, as, as stories are coming uh, to light largely after people pass away sadly that that network of gay men actually was underpinning really the western tattoo scene in europe america and britain in from the 50s and 60s because they were the ones who were communicating they were seeking each other out they were matchmaking people and many of them were so tattooed under their admittedly voluminous 1970s underpants <laughs> um but completely you wouldn't know they were tattooed if you saw them in their wife fronts but under their wife fronts they were completely and i mean completely covered in tattooing and i think we we and I certainly assumed that it was a kind of known about but tolerated part of the community. But actually, it turns out loads of, loads of those guys that Grace is talking about, I've got photos of some of them in their underpants in this guy's studio. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I was going to say ironically, but I guess it's not really contradictory. When I was a kid, I thought of tattoos as a really butch yeah. thing because my granddad was in the Merchant Navy I think he was the only person I knew who had a tattoo. And when he rolled his sleeves up again, yeah. it's not—it's more than a metaphor, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Thing. 
there was the name of his ship and a picture of his ship only it was all faded now because he was so old so it was like it was out of another time yeah, yeah, they're yeah. my favourite I love those tattoos if your tattoo's 35 years plus like I'm going to be obsessed one of, with one it. of my work colleagues just sent me a photo of her dad's tattoos that were done in Hong Kong in, in the Merchant Navy and I found the I just went through my archives and I found the original flash design from the tattoo that her dad would have got do you remember who did it it was Pinky Young I think yeah certainly so my uh, my uncle David was in the Navy as well and he has this like incredible back piece done by Pinky no way. yeah he's got actually all his tattoos are done by him because same thing Merchant Navy yeah. was in Hong Kong who is this Pinky yeah Pinky Young incredible he was Chinese actually but he worked in Hong Kong uh, for a long time he also worked in during the Korean War in Korea um, he basically was like the main tattooer in Hong Kong in the post-war period and then moved to the United States in the 1970s and became a, a correspondent and a rival to and teacher of really kind of famous tattooers like Sailor Jerry, whose rum brand you may have seen. There really was a Sailor Jerry? Yes. Yeah, he was a yeah. guy. He was a tattooer. Yeah. He, he's a legit guy. Yeah. He was a I guy. thought he was just a product name. No, lots of people do. Like like Ed Hardy as well. Also, he's become a, become a product name. Yeah. Sailor Jerry basically tat- started tattooing in Hawaii in the early 1930s died in the early 70s he had real rivalries with some of his younger tattooers that he didn't like he thought they were sort of young upstarts so if you sometimes if you go to get tattooed in his shop he'd give you a uh, a card and he'd say go and see my friend Lyle Tuttle who's another who's a young tattooer in California he said if you're ever in California go in and Lyle will give you a free tattoo from me and of course they hate like Jerry hated Lyle <laughs> and would just send people there to wind him up <laughs> You're listening to Tony Robinson's Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson, talking tattoos with my special guests this week, the painted people, Matt Lodder and Grace Neutral. I've seen photos of a lot of these really ancient mummified bodies with these patterns on them, really sophisticated patterns, not just the dots and dashes that, what's his name, what's he, or whatever his name is, had really beautiful work. How do we know that that was something that was tattooed on people when they were alive rather than than after the Yeah, so so there are, they may yet turn out to be slightly older than him, but they're basically about the same age. Some mummies in the British Museum from pre-dynastic Egypt, naturally preserved, mummified in in the deserts, and um, they are tattooed with not the kind of dot dash things that Otzi has, but for example, there's a, uh, a guy, he's, he's called the Gabeline Man, and he has a big raging bull on his arm. And on his other arm, he has a, um, he has a Barbary sheep. The way tattoos work, basically, is they are a product of your body healing after a wound. It's your immune system kicking in that keeps the tattoo in the skin. So if, there is a ta- if there's ink in the skin and it's, and it's healed up, we, we can pretty much be sure it's a tattoo and not body paint. And apart from the tattoos themselves, yeah. what evidence do we have of tattooing in ancient times how do we how do we know it was happening yeah. if we haven't got the bodies it's really it? so the, the, there's an amazing kind of constantly updated list run by some archaeologists of every tattooed mummy that we've yet found a friend of mine Aaron Dieter Wolf who's one of the maintainers of that was out in Berlin recently and he took a kind of UV camera with him and was just lighting up these Peruvian mummies in their stores like a Christmas tree because some some tattoos are not visible to the naked eye absolutely incredible including actually the, the ones in the British Museum have, had, were only just Discovered in uh, 2014 after having been in the British Museum since the 1890s. That would be so so cool in an Indiana Jones film. Yeah, literally, you just shining light, light bodies up. and discovering the tattoos. So there are some, and, and they're, they're coming up. But then you have to look <coughs> at other things. So the, the lines of evidence that come together are tools. 
So we're talking about tattoo needles uh, or needles that may have been used for tattooing. Ah, immediately. So my yeah. warning lights yeah. are starting flashing. How do we know, other than theorising, that yeah. a needle would be used for tattooing rather than cleaning your fingernails? Yeah, well, in a European context, we don't really is the answer to that question. In places where tattoo needles have a particular form, so where they're hafted, so they're, they're attached to a handle, and in places like in Polynesia, for example, in many Polynesian cultures, including in New Zealand, the Mori, they have toothed kind of combs almost on the edge, on the ends of long-handled hafts that are then tapped. Essentially, so, it looks like a, a like a mini rake. Yeah, like a like a sort of small rake. That and you they tap yeah, on. they come in different sizes, and they usually make them out of boar tusk, albatross bone, and they have been known to use t- uh, turtle shell, but they don't use turtle shell. The people that I have spoken to, they they tend to not use that now, just for like conservation purposes. Yeah. So those things you can you can pull out of the ground and kind of uh, uh, and date fairly reliably. In Native North America, Aaron works on uh, cultures that tattooed with cactus spines but also with turkey bones sharpened turkey bones you know here's a little tip for listeners after their christmas dinner maybe (laughs) what he was able to do is recreate some needles from from modern turkey bones tattoo himself with them and then compare them under a microscope to needles that are found in archaeological collections Mm. and you can tell by wear patterns and um, ink deposits ones that were used for tattooing and ones that were used for leather working or 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 making of nets or or whatever in europe where the uh, tattoos tattoo needles were more likely to have been metal we really can't tell and we have to kind of look contextually the other things that people find are are what are called compacts so bowls with pigment in them or razor blades for shaving hair but there's lots of debate particularly in in places like britain where there's not really any archaeological bodies of that have had tattoos in that have been preserved about whether or not they're tattooing needles at all it's very very difficult what we can conclude archaeologically is that tattooing is quite easy Uh, you just need to create a wound and get some pigment in it and by pigment we traditionally in most places in the world mean carbon black so smoke mm-hmm. or ash actually exactly the same things that are in the base basis of the professional pigments that grace will be using today but how you get that in you can either slice open or you can poke it through or you can poke it in or you can tap it in different cultures come up with different different ways of doing it but we can we can be pretty certain i think that tattooing has been pretty much everywhere always grace why are so many tattoos black why why don't we see more multicolored tattooing originally if we're talking western tattooing or tattooing anywhere like say for for example like people in the middle of nowhere in the mountains or people in prison and they're trying to create their own ink they're probably going to use something whatever it is that they can find burn it collect the soot scrape that soot and mix it with some kind of liquid i know in prison that they often use like baby oil things like that to create their own inks obviously that's like the easiest color to make Mm. if you're going to make like handmade ink from many different places regardless of where you are also i think it's just like the industry didn't have the money and the popularity that it does today so there wasn't like the research and companies weren't making ink because tattooing wasn't as popular as it was 15 years ago than it is today so just like supply and demand and anything that gets more popular and as the industry took off especially in the last 10 years everything's got better pigments have got better needles have got better machines everything that you use in a tattoo setup has got so much better over the last 10 years just because everybody wants to get tattooed i mean sailor jerry claimed to have invented purple tattoo ink when a tattooer found a formulation that would 
heal in the skin without your body rejecting it and look good and not fade with constant exposure to uv light in, you know if you're wearing it on your skin in a visible way tattoos would keep that secret and in fact i mean by keep it secret i mean they say it was secret and then we find letters in their archives going don't tell anyone but here's the recipe right <laughs> tattooing really up until the 19th century was black and sometimes red so if, even if you weren't using carbon pigments, you'd use organic plant-based pigments that ended up being kind of black. Occasionally we find red tattooing, which is from cinnabar, which is very bad news for your skin. Yeah, um, it's the same mercury. compound as rust. It's mercury, yeah. Or you'd also, yeah, rust, iron, iron um, ores as well got, got used. But the Victorians, as tattooing became commercialised in the 19th century, exactly what you're saying about the commercial demand, it was commercial tattooing, which happens for the first time in Britain in the 1880s. They, those guys are trying to figure out how they can get one up on their competitors. And actually, they're doing that by going to the paint shop, round, one of which is still here in London, called Cornelison, buying powdered pigments that artists would use, mixing them up into tattoo pigments, tattooing themselves with them and seeing if they worked and healed. And Sutherland MacDonald, who was the first kind of pro-tattooer in, in London, claimed to have coined the word tattooist as a contraction of tattoo and art, tattooer and artist because tattooer made him sound too much like a plumber. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, I'm an artist, goddammit. But he's, he talks uh, he talks to journalists once about, you know, trying to find a yellow, which largely at that time probably would have been cadmium, so yellow, lead-based pigments. And everyone he tried ended up like bringing him out in postures and he had to cut chunks out of his arm. But once a tattooer found a recipe for an ink that worked, this is, goes right up into the 1970s and 80s, would keep that recipe for themselves or for their friends. And there was a real kind of industry and, and, and rivalry in chatting. What's he using for his red? What's he using for his pink? What's he using for his purple? I think know? that just echoes through tattooing in oh, general. Yeah. You know, <laughs> tattooing, it's a lot different now with the internet. And like I said, because once something becomes, you know, once you create a monster and it becomes its own beast, you can't control it anymore. So you can't control the information and or, or not yeah. stop the information getting out there, you know? So the people who wanted to keep tattooing gatekept for, like they had been doing for so many years couldn't do that anymore, you know? And now it's great. There is so much more access to information and just there's a, a bigger conversation going on about tattooing and the structure of a shop and how it should be and how you should feel as a customer going yeah. there and all these things, you know, because it all impacts the way that a shop ultimately feels at the end of the day and yeah those that kind of like old school gate kept secret boys club um it's kind of died out between about the 1890s and about the beginning of world war ii all of the tattooers in london were making money by selling tattoo machines and house tattoo guides and design sheets by mail order or in their shop so this kind of world you're talking about was an artifact of actually the time when after the second world war tattooing wasn't so popular anymore mm -hmm. and so there were fewer customers and so people wanted to keep their customer base and so then this idea of like i'm not sharing my information with you really really kicked in there was a big disjuncture after the war wasn't yeah. there? which was that soldiers were coming home from the concentration right. camps people were seeing tattooing in a completely different light to how they'd seen it before weren't they yeah that's right so so most of the, the very early, in fact, probably all the early stories that were coming out as the horrors of, of Auschwitz and the concentration camps were coming out mentioned the forcible tattooing of prisoners with concentration camp <coughs> numbers. So tattooing becomes a, a really big part of the of the of the revelation of the horrors of the of the Holocaust. It's also a big part of the trial of Ilse Koch, who was accused, although it turned she was acquitted of that particular bit of producing lampshades with the skins of tattooed 
victims. That did happen oh uh, at Buchenwald, but basically after she was no longer there. Was she a Nazi soldier? She she gets called a bitch of Buchenwald. She's like a kind okay. of camp commandant, I think. Like or the a, madam of the Yeah, the she camp. was a big kind of overseer Nazi. She And she had a very, very public, you know, again, women being dangerous was a big kind of media circus. And the tattooing of inmates and prisoners and the Nazi fascination with tattoos was a big part of that story. Of course, like after the war, there's loads of tattooed people that have been tattooed in the Navy or the Army or their wives and girlfriends who'd been at home who'd been tattooed who might not have otherwise got tattooed you know, in other circumstances. So lots of people got tattooed in the war who didn't, who didn't like their tattoos afterwards. You know, they sort of come to regret them. That also then creates a generation of young people, of which you're probably one, Tony, who have parents who are tattooed or, or, or a generation older than that tattooed. So tattooing's not cool anymore. It's what your dad does or your granddad does. It's not very hip. And, you know, and visual culture's just changing at the time as well. Uh, everything's becoming sleek and monochrome in the 1960s. And the last thing, of course, that happens, and this again ties us back to what we were saying about sex work, is that the tattoos that are visible are people who are rolling their sleeves up at work or who are wearing too revealing clothing, if you like, who are showing off their tattoos in daily life. If if your king has a tattoo or your bank manager has a tattoo, you wouldn't know because it would be under their clothing and they'd show it off in private, if at all. And so all of that leads to this idea in the 50s and 60s particularly that tattooing is sort of, you know, is not not to be done. It's sort of stigmatised more than it ever had been. And and it, it leads to this exactly these ideas of ta- as their numbers of tattooing tattooers shrink. In 1955, there was only eight tattooers left in the country. They really become very jealous of each other <laughs> and of and of you know they fight for customers and actually that then leads to a, a really interesting core group of people around the world who then fight for it as an industry and its respectability but I think a lot of what certainly I thought about tattooing when I started my career and what persists in the public imagination is really if not exactly a product of the post-war period it's certainly kind of ossified or solidified mm. in the 1950s and 60s. There is uh, there's an elephant in the room, or indeed it may it may actually be an elephant, which is that you have both got a lot of tattoos. Yeah, yes. and I imagine that people listening in will have totally forgotten because because <laughs> you've got like voices like ordinary people, right? <laughs> so, um, Grace, t- tell me a, a little bit about the the tattoos that you've actually got the ones you're proud of the ones that you're fondest of well I guess because I've been getting tattooed from such a young age I'm 34 now and I started getting tattooed when I was 15 and also I'm a very all or nothing person so I really went for the like gold star of get as many as you can (laughs) as quickly as you can so I don't know I don't really have like favorites I'd say all of my tattoos represent like a a part of my growth a part of my creative journey and and just a part of my growth as a human being and again it's just like they're just pretty things that I've liked to adorn myself with over time it will kind of just become part of me and it's like you you almost forget that it's there you know neither of you have very many tattoos on on your faces. There's, there's a just a kind of grace. You've got grace has got, got a few. Yeah, but it's like it's you have to pull. You, when you said that, uh, so he's not telling the truth. But, <laughs> but, but in order to show me, you actually had to pull your hair back. It's like yeah, they kind and of I've got, sneaky, I've got aren't top they? Of my head tattooed as well. It's under my hair. So yeah, so you when you when you've got the short hair, yeah, and you can see your head tattoos. When I uh, like, I've got a fringe, so I've got a lot of uh, tattoos on my forehead and down the side of my face and ears. So kind of like the central part of our faces aren't tattooed yeah. is that is that something deliberate that you haven't 
So there is something about the face that is quite um, transgressive. And although tattooing has a long, long history in Europe prior to the Pacific Encounter moment of the late 1700s, the thing that was really surprising to people like Captain Cook and Sidney Parkinson, who was the artist aboard the Endeavour, was the Maori facial tattooing. It was the extent of the tattooing on the face that was more surprising than the technology of the tattooing itself. Sorry, d- d- let me just stop you there, d- yeah. just because I'd like you to amplify yeah. something. You referred to the Pacific encounter yes. moment. Yes, yes. So w- w- what's going on there? So in the 1760s, 1767, 1768... Captain Cook and French captains like Louis-Antoine Bougainville start basically colonising, going abroad, going uh, ashore in places like Tahiti, Fiji, Samoa, New Zealand. One of the kind of stories that people tell about tattoo history, there was no tattooing in Europe before Captain Cook discovered tattooing in the Pacific. And we do get the word tattoo from Tahitian. So in Tahitian, the word for tattooing and for writing in general is tattoo. It's onomatopoeic. So as Grace said, tattooing there is done with a basically a mallet and a long hafted needle that you tap. So you get tattoo, 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 tattoo. The word exists in English, meaning a drumbeat. We still have that, a military tattoo. So those things converge. Before that, though, in England, it was called things like pricking or marking or staining, pouncing occasionally. But what happens is over the course of the following couple of decades really tattooing because of the colonial narrative of that period is really one way that Europeans use to differentiate themselves from these peoples that they're colonizing a few hundred years earlier when Europeans had encountered tattooed people in the Americas the story was much more these people are just like us you know our ancestors were as were tattooed it still has a obviously kind of a, a, a racialized and European um, hegemonic idea the idea that you know somehow these cultures are behind us in some kind of cultural trajectory but because europeans had heard these stories about from from um from people like herodotus that and caesar and um pliny and others that the ancient britons and ancient europeans had been tattooed they were like oh look this is like a kind of european tribe in you know in aspic kind of kind of Mm. thing but the colonial language and the rhetoric and the logic if you like of colonialism had changed so much by the 18th century that tattooing was a way to almost say these people are diff- very different from us. They're savage, they're, bar- they're barbaric, they're yeah, well, other. That's exactly what they did, especially with the Maori community in New Zealand. They branded them as savages and then they also gave them they gave them false treaties. They signed over land that they didn't realise that they were signing over. Yeah. They were signing things that they didn't know. But I went, so I went to uh, New Zealand and I got to spend time with this guy called Moko, who is a guy my age, he's about 34, and he is trying to kind of reignite the the cultural tattooing yeah. within his community and within his tribe. There are big, amazing revival movements like that, although it's really, really quite inspiring. Exactly, Because yeah. Christian missionaries, actually, in New Zealand, those practices did survive um, in a rump form. But in places like Inuit communities in the Arctic, tattooing was basically completely wiped out. And there are contemporary artists and anthropologists and artists slash anthropologists who are working on that, but they're working on it from a much less firm base than the Pacific. Grace, base. you've done quite a lot of work, haven't you, on uh, on comparative cultures? Yeah, so I was uh, lucky enough to get to travel around the world and just immerse myself in different tattoo culture to learn about it. And New Zealand was one of the places that we went. And it was probably one of my favourite trips out of the bunch like not that you should have favourites but (laughs) it was definitely one of the most educational and moving experiences that I've had the Maori community are 
an incredible community. They're so beautiful, welcoming. Their customs are beautiful. It's full of art, dance, uh, music. Their tattoo culture and history is like super interesting and just talking to different generations of the yeah. the Maori community there and seeing what tattooing means to them because they used the fact that the Maori people had tattoos as a way to separate and and make them different and make people scared of them even dehumanize dehumanize them exactly and so you know the generation of Maori people who'd be like my dad's generation or my granddad's generation they were uh, you know taught through colonialism that they shouldn't have these tattoos and they were kind of whitewashed and that was kind of taken out of their cultural practice in a lot of places but I met this guy called Tamaiti who is a a Maori activist in New Zealand. He's an extremely inspiring man and he does a lot of work with the community and the government just to kind of get their land back and get their customs back. But he was one of the only people in his kind of generation to wear the full tamoko, which is the full face tattoo. And, you know, like be one of those people to force that resurgence and educate the children and his children. And in his community, in his area, the resurgence of tattooing is like beautiful and it's a really sacred practice and I was very blessed to be able to to see it. When I asked you 10 minutes or so ago about your own tattoos Mm -hmm. you kind of veered away from describing your tattoos. Did, Did you do that because it's something personal and secret no. or, or did you just answer the question in a different way? No, not at all. So yeah, I can I can describe my tattoo. So I, I've i got quite a few layers. My I got heavily tattooed when I was 15. From the age of 15 to 17, I just went full gung-ho with it. Got basically from my knees down on both legs fully tattooed and I got a full sleeve on my right arm. And then obviously, you know, tastes change. You grow and you don't like things anymore more you'd like different things and I envisioned different things for my body like I got loads of color you're talking about color tattoos right I got loads of color tattoos when I was really young in my teenage years got full color flowers octopuses all this crazy vibrant stuff and then I realized when I was 18 I was like I just really like that chromatic aesthetic. I like black tattoos. I like heavy black ink. I like really bold lines. I like the way that a lot of heavy black work looks. So then that kind of spurred me onto my next chapter of tattooing my body, which was creating this symmetrical, heavy kind of almost armor-like structure of tattooing on my lower body. And yeah, it's been a really long but beautiful process and... I don't regret any tattoos I have because I think everything that I've covered and layered over, it's been a journey and it's meant to be like that, you know? Grace and I were in a book. How long oh ago is that book now? Ten, that... You're on the cover of it. Yeah, I know. It's like probably more than 10 years ago. It's <laughs> yeah. called London, London Tattooing or something was the name of the, the book. The London Book of Tattoos. Yeah, and there's a, you're on the cover with your, with your back piece, your swan and my, back piece. And my and dirty your, shoes. And your dirty <laughs> shoes and your blonde hair. <laughs> so, you can, so people can go, to the, go and find a copy of that book and you yeah. can see how our, both of our tattoos have kind of evolved. <laughs> 
think time. we're both pretty irrecognizable as well from that book to now. I think yeah, we looked at yeah, both of us. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we look very different. How does how does Matt look different? We're just very heavily tattooed now, aren't we? Yeah, I still I I I didn't get anything visible until I had my PhD and I by then I'd started to get stuff done. But I've I've also had major facial surgery since then, so my face looks different. Not as not because of aesthetic reasons, because of functional ones. But yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things I, I do as a tattoo historian is often I have to kind of try and identify if two people in photos many decades are part of the same person and you can often go oh no that's the that's the neck tattoo or that's the that's the that's the chest piece or something even if it's sort of in the later versions amongst other things so they do become these you know to sort of use a technical art historical term they become these indexes in in time (laughs) can i ask you was it like a conscious decision because obviously like i'm a tattoo artist so i work in the industry if i go and get my eyes tattooed or my forehead tattooed it doesn't really affect my ability to work yeah was getting your head and neck and hands did you save that purposefully yeah. because of the fact that you are a historian yeah I do joke a bit that I'm less employable with an art history PhD you know outside of academia than I am with hand toes right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I didn't get anything visible until I had my PhD. And by that point, it was like, well, as I said, I'm I'm unemployable anyway. Who's going to, you know, I've got an ISU PhD. But like you, I do like that frisson of having on my passport or my bank card or something like Dr. Matt Lodder. And people going, oh, you're... Someone and they're said, looking at you like, Someone wow, said to me once, okay. you know, I'm, I'm a director of American studies at the University of Essex, and someone said, you don't look like director of anything. I was like, is that good or bad? I don't know. <laughs> but that said, you know, there, I have found articles from like 1982, for example, in a London magazine, which says, you know, everyone's everyone's doing it now, including university lecturers. So probably not as, oh, visi- yeah. probably not as visibly as I am now, but there's always been... You know, there's always been sort of tattooed weirdos, yeah. and I mean that in a good way. Yeah. And and, and some sometimes that the tattooed weirdos they hid they hid their tattooedness under their under their clothes. And I when I um when I got my job, my dad would help me move my books in to my office, and he said, "Oh, you probably wouldn't have got this job if you didn't have hand tattoos." Would and I was like, no, you're probably right. Yeah. He, was, he was ruining the day. I, I, I'm probably a rare case that I wish I'd got visibly tattooed earlier on. Grace, you talked about your eyes. Yes, I've got my eyes tattooed. So you think of a tattoo, you think of the machine and the... Don't do this at home, noise. kids, yeah, by the way. Do not do this at home, <laughs> kids. Yeah, so we have tattooing and then we have the body piercing, which is like a kind of subculture that overlaps that too. They collide these worlds. And then you have body modification, which is kind of like a more underground sector of... Because tattooing is body modification. You Yeah, I think we like sort of, we'd call them like pseudo-surgical interventions done not not by medical professionals or not always done by medical professionals. That is so a is that beautiful what... way to put it. Almost like yes, it's it my is. job. <laughs> <laughs> he knows a lot. Yeah. Been to university. So, what, what, what have you had done to your eyes then? It's tattooed. So the whites of my eyes have had tattoo ink injected not into them because essentially there's like a clear layer that goes over the white bit of your eye, right? And the ink sits in between that layer, so on top of the white bit and underneath the clear bit. And it's a procedure that not many people do, but I was... It's very illegal in the UK. It's very illegal in the UK. Body modification in general is very illegal in the UK Mm. and, you know, they've made people an example of and sent them to jail for practicing body modification and a lot of the time you'll find that body modification artists are kind of like these lone wolf 
yeah. inverted commas, weirdos that kind of are always traveling around the world, never settled in one place. And yeah, when I was working as a body piercer, my boss introduced me to someone because I wanted to get my tongue split like a snake, you know, when they split the tongue. So she introduced me to someone who could do that for me. And then they introduced me to someone who could do all this other stuff so I ended up being an assistant to them for many years and in that time I got my eyes tattooed my tongue split my navel removed my ears pointed like a pixie and some facial scarification as well wow. the eyeball tattooing stuff is so interesting because it does have a sort of slight history to it it was the technique to do it was developed by um like ocular surgeons basically to like repigment people there's some there are some re weird rare genetic conditions and things that can happen to your eyes that make them depigment and so the way that uh, eye tattooing is done which is not really tattooing actually injects the ink into the layer yeah. it was originally developed by cosmetic surgeons cosmetic ophthalmologists or, or, or ocular surgeons in the 1940s but it was basically these a group of about four people in canada in the early 2000s who sort of realised it was possible and found some people that could do it for them. And I think there's very, very few people in the world who've had it done. Some people who've had it done have gone blind, so it's very risky. You were one of the first people in the UK to get it done, weren't you? Yeah, I think I was one of the first in the UK, but when I got it done, it was also, yeah, it, I was like 19, so 18, yeah. 19. So it was, it was a long time ago yeah. and it was just fresh off the back of the kind of that Canada meetup where they kind of, this group of people they kind of experimented with how they were going to tackle this one of the first ways they actually tried was hand poking to see yeah. if they could actually hand poke the way that I do it so like manually take a tattoo needle and hand poke uh, dots of ink underneath the sclera which is the white bit over the eye that was obviously not successful <laughs> but yeah then they realized that they could take an insulin needle and inject small bubbles of ink around the eye and then they spread over a period of half an hour to an hour but I say all this like it sounds so smooth and easy like it was one of the and I've had pretty much every part of my body tattooed and I've you know cut things off and cut things in half and it's not about pain it's about risk and eye tattooing was definitely the riskiest yeah. thing I've ever done I would never recommend it to anyone I get people ask me all the time who did your oh, eyes where can I get my eyes done and I never tell them mm. I say if you really want this done you should think about it and you should look at all the people online who have not had a lucky ride like me because again I was 18 and fearless and totally besotted with this world of body modification and tattooing so I was so ready to sit myself down in the chair and be like you know do it I'm ready you know I have to say it is a lovely and extraordinary and quite hypnotic effect <laughs> thank yeah, you yeah. I really appreciate that it's true I, I mean maybe I shouldn't say that because it sounds like I'm encouraging people to no like I down. don't get me wrong I love it I don't regret doing it I think I am very lucky though and I need to emphasize that to people because what happened was I was the assistant to someone who essentially invented the procedure yeah. so I had gone through a long period of time of seeing him do it assist him do it but also it was because of a video that went on YouTube of him doing an eyeball procedure that every Tom Dick and Harry that does a bit of body modification thought that they could do it as well yeah. and that's when things really started to go wrong yeah and he wasn't the most like cautious and 
diligent of people a lot of the time as well, right? No, if you so, check his criminal record, you'll see <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. definitely not the case. Um, <laughs> yeah. What I find so interesting about this, I think really, that's the best throwaway comment <laughs> we've had in the yeah, whole of any of our podcasts. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I think human beings have been doing stuff to their bodies for thousands potentially hundreds tens certainly tens maybe even hundreds hundreds of thousands of years right tattooing seems to go back at least 45,000 if not 100,000 years the kind of kind of body modification stuff that we're talking about other than tongue splitting which is very new yeah there's a history to most there. yeah and and the human body is very resilient i mean people sort of ask me questions and ask you questions all the time about about pain and healing and risk and of course all those things are present but basically the human the human body is very resilient and is capable of some amazing things and i think there is something about communicating through the body through ornamentation hairstyle jewelry clothing that that leads to the kind of experimentations that we're talking about How do you research the history of tattooing? I mean, looking at you two right now, I can only see, I imagine, about a 20th of your tattoos. Yeah, this is the issue, and it's caused some problems, right? Because so much of tattooing is not visible, both because a lot of tattooing is happening under clothing and because the kind of people who were tattooed didn't have their painting, the portraits painted or the photographs taken without their clothes on. What that leaves, actually, is a really weird, I call it like an archival lens problem, that if you go looking for tattooing, the tattoos you find are tattoos on, guess what, sailors and criminals, right? Because sailors have their bodies recorded when they're enlisting, um, because it's helpful to, if they desert <laughs> to get them back and criminals have their uh, tattoos recorded when they're getting sent to jail because then a magistrate or a jailer can connect up criminal histories in the days before fingerprinting and things so academics who've tried to work on this problem in the past have gone looking for tattooing and found really only criminal and sailor tattooing the more vernacular stories are much harder to discover that's a fact that generations of academics um, police officers, criminologists have failed to understand, and yeah, something that we've I've been trying to correct. You know, what 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 kind of tattoo history do we find if we don't just focus on prison and criminal records? You know, so much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Grace, there's been tattooing on the cover of Vogue quite recently, which you wouldn't have expected a few years ago. Yeah, so because I'm a, a hand poke artist, I've always had a fascination of different ways that hand poke is done and the different techniques, like some of the ways that we've talked about today, often from like indigenous culture. And there is a woman called Wang Wu. She is 106 years old and she tattoos in this rural village on top of a mountain in the Philippines. And she tattoos with a thorn from a I'm not sure what kind of tree it is but these trees they grow these pretty harsh gnarly looking big <laughs> thorns and um, they kind of strap them to a stick and and tap again hand poke with the tapping and uh, yeah she's been tattooing for many many years and it's something that she's taught her daughters and her granddaughters to do I, I actually chat to her granddaughter who's also called Grace because I follow her I followed her and her grandmother's work for years but it's just interesting that now we have you know this 106 year old indigenous tattoo artist from the Philippines like on the cover of Vogue magazine now you know if you told me that 10 years ago I told you you'd be crazy in the in the 1920s 1929 there was a there was a line of um tattoo designed bathing suits done by Elsa Schiaparelli the fashion like correspondent so she was kind of you know this shocking knitwear designer she did she did a sort of line of tattooed bathing suits and 
both French and American Vogue like wrote about them, but they weren't kind of shocked that they were like tattoos. They were sort of horrified that they were a bit too busy and a bit too gauche. They were a bit, you know, <laughs> <laughs> they were like, oh. yeah, I love. <laughs> it's that. not very chic. Right, that was their critique. So yeah, even Vogue have kind of moved on a bit. Yeah, no, I feel like Vogue are very like used to tattoos. It's just like the the fact that you know it, it was just it was amazing to me and good for her. Like, yeah. I'm sure it's probably not even something. That, does she even like I I think like does Wang even know what Vogue is? And she's yeah, just this incredible, incredible woman. She, yeah, she is. I would love to go there. I would love to get <laughs> tattooed by her. It's been absolutely, absolutely <laughs> fascinating. I've, I've just got one more question, which I, I, I level at people at the end of every interview. I say, what's your cunning plan for your subject? I mean, what I mean by that, I suppose, is, is how you see the future. What I do hope in my own work is that I don't have to keep sort of banging these same drums about tattooing being just for sailors anymore i've been doing that already for more than 10 years it hasn't quite sunk in yet and i'm sure it will continue ever more yeah so uh, tattooing is so many things have affected tattooing especially over the last five years so if you look back 10 years you have this explosion of popularity within tattooing and it's not just you know like the underground kids they're getting tattooed anymore or the sailors or whatever it's everyone's getting tattooed because it's so in your face now it's everywhere in popular culture you know your favorite football player your favorite boxer your favorite musician i I did notice a couple of years ago there was an advert for the post office and on the cover was a guy with his baby and he had a full sleeve of a burning church tattooed on him and I was like times really have changed yeah, yeah no I love so that so what, what direction is it going in so I think well I just think in general tattooing is much more accepted like you see you see it in yeah. everyday adverts you see it in yoga adverts on TV with people with tattoos and it's just very normalised now so I think it's one of those things where it was this kind of underground cool edgy thing and now it's become really popular I think it will become mundane to the majority at some point and I do think it will end up going somewhat not the way it was but yeah. somewhat underground again yeah. I'm not even gonna lie I'm I, I hope for those days <sighs> because there are some really beautiful things about the evolution of tattooing and there are so many positives like I could bang on for it about the positives for hours but there is some mysticism and uh, magic that has kind of been washed away um, from tattooing being so popular. So to get that kind of mystery and magic back would be nice. The first processor in London, in, in, in Southern McDonald, he said that tattooing was too popular in like, 1889. So, so tattooers have always been moaning that it's right? too trendy, right? <laughs> it is so <laughs> so you're not wrong. I never expected that I would get two really sussed people who are covered in tattoos and the resolution would be tattooing is too popular yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, looking yeah. forward to the days when yeah. it's only us two <laughs> yeah yeah when we're the only ones yeah thanks so much thank, thank you, you so much tony Thanks for listening. If you want to join in the conversation, you can find me on X at Tony Robinson and you can follow all our podcast news on X and Instagram at CunningCastPod. And please don't forget to follow this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. Tony Robinson's Cunning Cast is produced by the wonderful Melissa Fitzgerald and is a Zinc Media production. 
We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.